Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. <clears throat> this is Chris Morgan. People are in the wild for all kinds of reasons. Where's my water? Give me my water. <laughs> That's a really good Chris Morgan impersonation. It's terrible. <laughs> So are we ready to go? I think we're ready to go. All right. So we wanted to do something a little different on this bonus episode of The Wild. We have an interview of two wait, 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 documentary. Jim, 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 we should probably introduce ourselves. Um, good point. I'm Jim Gates. I am the editor of The Wild. And who are you? And I'm Matt Martin. I'm the producer. All right. We got that out of the way. All right. So anyway, Chris interviewed two documentary filmmakers about filming penguins in Antarctica, Jeff Wilson and Mark Smith. And we wanted to play an uncut version of this interview, just to give you a sense of how the podcast sausage is made. Yeah, a penguin sausage, if you will. Yuck. Anyway, so um, in that same spirit, we wanted to kind of share how this interview came to be. And then on the morning of the taping, we had a bit of an issue. Yeah, a little bit of an issue. You want to tell us about that, Matt? So this was a real logistical nightmare to get this interview put together because... Mark Smith and Jeff Wilson, they live in the UK, and so we had to find a studio there for them to talk to us here in America. And, you know, getting everyone's schedules together, and we finally got it set, and I triple and quadruple checked the time difference. We were going to have to be early in the morning for their afternoon, and we had it all set, and we were ready for early the next morning. So everything's set. It's perfect. You're all good to go. Good to go. Right. And then I wake up in the morning, I'm brushing my teeth, and then I get this ding on my phone and it's a message from Mark Smith and he's saying, hey, we're in the studio waiting for you guys to connect. So they're an, they're an hour early. So they're an hour early and I go into panic mode. I'm freaking out because I don't know, like if we miss this opportunity, I don't know if we're going to have another one to get both of these guys into a studio again to do this interview. So I start making phone calls. I call you. I call Chris, tell him to wake up the engineer and I'm like running down to the studio and Jeff and Mark were great. They just went and got some coffee and waited for us to get our game together. And then about 45 minutes later, everyone's in the studio. We get it going. And luckily, I think we got a really good conversation. And you know what the problem was, Jim? What? Damn daylight savings. The UK switches their clocks a week before we do in America. That's just wrong. It is wrong. Backwards. Yeah. So my takeaway is that we just need to get rid of daylight savings across the globe. I'm, I'm with you on that. But it was a little stressful that morning. It's kind of like a, a duck come on a pond, but underneath the water is just frantically paddling away. Yeah. And so that's what we wanted to do with this bonus episode. We wanted to give you guys a little example. You get this nice, polished podcast episode, but there's a lot happening behind the scenes to make that work. So this is kind of like the behind the scenes interview with Mark Smith and Jeff Wilson. So we'll start the interview right where Chris got connected to Mark and Jeff in the UK. Could you increase the volume a little bit of their end, or who's, who's controlling that? There's three studios involved here. It's a bit of a juggle, isn't it? We should probably great. speak if you want to hear a better, hello, better, hello. better volume. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah that's great. That, that's much better. Thanks, okay. guys. Yeah. yeah. Um, everything good with you guys? Every, all right. good there? We were just talking about how we really don't want to talk about bears, so let's get that out the way first. <laughs> <laughs> when, anything how did you bears, know what Chris? my introduction was going to be? <laughs> well, it's funny you should oh. say that, Jeff, because my first line here is we, we met among the bears, didn't we? You know, I remember the first time you arrived on the beach there at Katmai and saw all those bears, Jeff. You, it, you, it, uh, it's one of those moments, isn't it, when you see that for the it's first time? It's an amazing time. thing, isn't it? You, you know, we have such a small industry as wildlife filmmakers and virtually everybody who comes back from Katmai or that part of the world says it's got to be one of the top three wildlife experiences. And then we all we all kind of brush it off because we've all had amazing wildlife experiences and then then you arrive and you 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 get it it's amazing you know that kind of proximity yeah. to those animals is and and just the wildness of the place is 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 mind blowing and it still it sits with you you know to this day i think yeah it it does doesn't it and i've got so much i saw a clip the other day mark of you with a bear that bear walking right mm-hmm. right behind you along oh, the riverbank yeah. there yeah and, yeah uh, yeah I remember you, f- you filmed it right up to the last minute and then just turned around and your eyes like saucers kind of thing. It's a startling place to be, isn't it? It was, it was really good to, to meet with you guys there. But, you know, bears are one thing. 
and you know no road no no road access to that area float plane access only you know but but some of the places you guys have been and and worked it, it makes that place seem like a city park almost you know um i just wanted to touch on a very famous clip that that almost everyone has seen and that the sequence in planet earth of the snow leopard chasing its prey down that vertical wall mm-hmm. off a cliff and and that was you guys that captured that and uh you know, just one example of, of one of the extreme places that you've worked and, and, and what you came away with. That was an amazing thing to yeah, see. Yeah, it was. It was an incredible. It's one of those uh, boys' own adventures that you, you 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 never really forget. And coincidentally, we were just with Nissar, who was uh, the 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 guy who helped us with that whole of the logistics. We were just having lunch with him just before this. So yeah, we were just reminiscing about the whole thing. And it really, it's one of those. It was one of those trips which, you know, kind of is a is a major kind of landmark in your life, really, because it was one of the ones that everything just came together with a lot of luck and a lot of a lot of planning, but a lot of luck as well. You often that that was, you know, it's such a cliche in our industry for things to happen at the last minute. But that was genuinely one of the times when we were failing miserably right up until the last minute. And then and then this amazing, <laughs> amazing mother and cub popped out of the out of the cliff face and sort of offered themselves to us which was just an extraordinary situation i think that's one of the one of the i think that genuinely is that sequence that started or the whole thing of and on the last day we got lucky so sort of thing because that actually genuinely that that did we'd been filming for, you know for for weeks uh you know with a lot of luck with the snow leopard and but we still hadn't got you know a, a hunt sequence which we we'd, we'd been sort of dreaming of all these scenarios where it might happen and literally we were supposed to be flying out on that last that didn't, day didn't present president musharraf kind of seconded our our helicopter uh-huh. i think was what we were told right and so yeah. there was a helicopter due to come and get oh, us and right? the president of pakistan decided it he needed to use it and so we had nowhere to go so we just went back to where we saw the snow leopards last and mark got the magic after that but it was yeah complete luck oh that's that's it that is a great story so so experiences like that sort of sort of readied you for 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 the next extreme thing that you were to take on and and you know another one of my favorite behind the scenes clips ever is you guys in the frozen in frozen planet you know that's narrated by sir david attenborough where where you're describing how you filmed this this uh, sequence in this colony of adeli adeli penguins where where were you there can you set that scene for us you know and 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 why this species adeli penguins just kind of bring us into that spot with you so so we were obviously making a series about the the polar regions and um you know we have really fortunate access to american antarctica um, which really means flying into mcmurdo base uh, from new zealand and what McMurdo Base gives you is a, an ability to to sort of shotgun out from their base of logistics into some amazing uh, wildlife experiences. And we had teams who were going off and, and filming emperor penguins and teams who were going off and filming underwater. And, and Mark and I, I think, probably drew the short straw because no one else wanted to do it. And they sent us to the Adelie Penguin Colony. <laughs> Um, which is, you know, everybody, it was an extraordinary, I don't know if you remember, Mark, but people would, would look at us when we told them that we were going to this place called Cape Crozier, which mm-hmm. is this fantastically famous place in polar expedition kind of literature because Scott had sent a team of scientists there to collect some eggs, some emperor penguin eggs. And uh, and, and that formed a part of a, a story called The Worst Journey in the World. So in literature, it's a very famous place. But when you arrive in McMurdo, People look at you and they go, ah, you're going to Crozier. Okay, good luck with that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you, like we might not see you yeah, again. Yeah, I just kind of don't thing. think it's a place that people volunteer <laughs> to go. And then us, we were kind of naively did and um, and paid the price yeah. afterwards. <laughs> and, and and you were there for, for, on that project, four months, was it? Filming Penguin? On and off, yeah, yeah, we were there for like four months. We had a break in the middle, but yeah, we were there for a long, long time. And, and, and. Mark, what were the what were the conditions like there? How can you describe what life is like for a penguin or a filmmaker filming penguins in a place like that? Um, it's pretty bleak. I mean, the reason that, that that people were laughing about Cape Crozier was that it's got a reputation for the strongest winds, and the reason the the colonies there is because the winds are so strong they blow all snow and ice off uh, off the ground, so that at least the penguins have bare rock to. To nest on, so it's no surprising that it's not surprising that uh, you know uh, it's a very windy place. And so we, yeah, we got there, and it was a be- I remember very well. It was a beautiful day. Uh, we got everything unpacked and um, thought, ah, oh, this is going to be a doddle. And it was literally within 24 hours 
we went out and the wind started to get up and we got into one of the biggest storm well definitely the biggest storm i've ever been in winds up to 150 miles an hour and we were stuck in this cabin for for three four days and um it, it was wow. it was just you know we're literally sitting in there thinking this the roof is going to come off this thing uh, we're going to die all the equipment's going to be blown away um, and it was just an extraordinary experience and we're thinking how are the penguins going to manage off to a fairly positive start, yeah it was just yeah, so in mind with neither of us with that, to that list of things you know we were literally had been thrown in the deep end um, at that point so that is kind of an extraordinary baptism oh my fire. goodness so it was all new. Oh. And when you say what were, and how many how many people were there, and what was the structure you were living in? Well, when we first arrived, it was just Mark and I, and an, an assistant, um, a field assistant who was who, who was there. Wow. So, and then the scientists who who joined us came about it was about a month later, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. After our first, so we spent our first month kind of exploring the whole thing on our own. Having obviously we we talked with the scientists at length before we'd gone on the shoot. One of the, I, I remember one of the things that someone had failed to explain to us is that, um, you know, we, we'd intentionally arrived before the Adelis had come back to the continent of Antarctica, and, and someone had failed to explain to us that an entire an Adelie colony is basically um, built on thousands and thousands and thousands of years of decaying dead penguins. And so I remember walking into the colony that first time, mm-hmm. and all you see, for as far as the eye can see, is basically penguin carcasses. And I and I can re- distinctly remember thinking, bloody hell, we've got this completely wrong. Someone's going to come and pick us up in two months. We won't have filmed a thing because all the penguins are dead. <laughs> and and uh, and how are we going to solve this one? Are we going to have to start animating carcasses or something like that to kind of make ourselves look better? Um, but it's a shocking thing because it's you know it is literally you know mm. every, the substrate of a penguin colony is just dead. It's just thousands of years of mummified penguins because nothing really decays there. It just gets, you know, it's sort of frozen into the ground. Wow. And then the penguins arrived when? At what point did you start seeing them come back? So they're pretty faithful to around about October 15th. um, And that's what we'd sort of taken away from our conversations with the scientists. And I remember we had our big storm and there weren't many penguins around. And then the storm finished after three or four days and we went back, we went down and suddenly they were... They were kind of just arriving, weren't they? Mm-hmm. And they were coming out across the sea ice. And so they were pretty pretty on time. So that sort of time between the 15th and the 22nd of October is when they start flooding in. And um, and that has to do with daylight length, I think, really, more than anything else. Yeah. I see. And it's just, you see a penguin come over the horizon. There's one that turns into how how big is his colony eventually? Well, it it, I think it gets up to uh, half a million. I mean, it's the la- now, it wasn't at the time, but it is now the largest Adelie penguin colony on the planet. You know, it's it, wow. you get 500,000 penguins plus there, uh, 250,000 breeding pairs. It's um, pretty impressive. Cause, I mean, you, you, you're you up, the colony is from sea level up this slope. And so when you're up the slope, you get a look out over the sea ice. And when you look out, the the, the sea, the actual open sea to start with is maybe, I don't know, two miles further out from the shore. And so you're looking, looking you're scanning the horizon. Eventually, you'll see these little dots coming, you know, thousands of little dots coming towards you. And coming out, it's very heat hazy there as well. So you'll see them sort of emerging out the heat haze coming towards you, and you realise that's them all, you know, charging back. And of course, when they start arriving, then then you, I mean, the defining thing about a, an Adelie penguin colony is just is, is just chaos. I mean, it's you know, it's it's full of dead penguins because that's where they, you know, not many of them make it through the season. But it it suddenly ends up being. I remember Mark, you talking about it like being a war zone it just it goes from being a very placid kind of cold beautiful place to this just chaotic war zone that you then have to try and make a film in um certainly towards the end of the season and, and war zone in terms of what competition between them? yeah i mean the it or just just the main well everything's place. dying you know basically you know it's for for the skewers for instance there's these birds of the skewers that all that, that uh, predate the, the the chicks and so and by January, February, the temperature's gone up, so it's it's above freezing. So all the frozen mud is now liquid mud. All the mummified penguins that were underfoot are now uh, floating around in this mud. The skewers are killing anything they can, so there's basically a mixture of blood and mud and uh, penguin poo 
all over the place and you're wading around in the stuff and that mixed in with the noise of the colony the constant noise of the colony it's most extraordinarily um, oppressive place to be after a while it's fine you know after for a few days it's it's amazing but after a you know three months of it I, i literally would go down i'd be there for an hour and i said i'd have to i have to walk away up the hill to get to, to hear myself think um so yeah it's it definitely had its, its moments it's so special for that for that reason not having any human influence in that particular colony you know in that place we were talking about it pre uh, earlier this you know that there aren't any human noises and so your entire um you know, stimuli, audi- auditory stimuli is all coming from the natural world, which is an amazing thing. And there was a there was a sound recordist who came down as part of that project who pointed out that there that this is a kind of place where the sound hasn't changed since Scott and his team were there a hundred years ago. There's no overflights from passing jets. You know, you don't hear the sound of generators or or cars or or anything. It's just exactly the same sound as it has been for millennia. And that's an incredible thing, but like Mark says, when it's five hundred thousand penguins screaming at you, and then you start hearing them, a couple of them say your name after a couple of you know they're going Jeff, 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 <laughs> and you're like, who the hell said that? You know, no, gen- that's, that's genuine... definitely true. I yeah, yeah that starts to pl- play on your mind. Yeah, it really does. I heard exactly the same thing. Oh, yeah. What Jeff or Mark? Mark, did, yeah. did you kind of <laughs> Jeff? I I know that you've got this. You got this sort of obsession with with early explorers. I can relate because I'm the same. You know, and Scott mm. and Shackleton, and, and we've talked about them. Did you feel like you were channeling those people when you're in a place like this? You know, because it is a place that's not changed since they were there. I I I think it's not much. It's not as much as channeling them as just being humbled by the fact that these guys were going through something. You know, of course the 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 story that was written about the expedition to Cape Crozier where we were working was called The Worst Journey in the World and and it was because they went through this enormous trial and tribulation to get there and the, admittedly they went in winter and we were in spring um, but you know we got there in a in a uh, an hours long uh, helicopter ride and it took them two and a half weeks of marching with sleds to get to um, the place where we were and, and in that time it was so cold their teeth were shattering they lost their tents you know all for in the name of science and so I think I mean the whole thing is completely humbling you know the, the fact that we were kind of living in the lap of luxury comparatively to what those guys were doing a hundred years ago but Amazing, amazing. Well, yeah, you're you're very humble about it, Jeff. I know you weren't chattering and losing <laughs> teeth, but <laughs> it sounds like it was quite. The... So let's talk for a minute about. So you're living basically in a shipping container. It looked like to me up the hill from the penguins, right? And and what was your? We'll come back to the penguin stuff in a minute because I want you to outline that for us. Where we are, why they're there, what this phenomena is. But back to sort of your daily routine and. You're eating and sleeping, and I have a list here: eating, sleeping, crapping, and bathing. <laughs> what, we only what, did a few. What did your things. routine consist of? In our time. We tried to hold off the crapping. <laughs> it's too painful to, to get outside. <laughs> the toilet was interesting, actually. The toilet was uh, attached; was a, a basically a cupboard attached to the outside of the, uh, effectively the, the heart. And so you had to go outside and, and open this thing. It was shaped like an upright coffin or a bit like a rocket. It was sort of pointy at one end. And um, it, some, most weathers it was all right. But then, you know, when there was a storm blowing, it really felt like the whole thing was about to take off. Um, so, so you really, you know, it kind of speeded everything up quite, quite well. I, don't know, I had performance anxiety when the wind was knocking at yeah. the door. Yeah, it was hard to get squeeze one out. Mm. That's great. Um, Anyway, that was the uh, that was the what was so, the other so, list? <laughs> I love it. I love how quickly it comes around to toilets when you talk into bricks. You know, it's like. But you know, yeah, the extraordinary it's, thing it's, about it's I mean, awesome. so Antarctica is governed by some very um, well thought out, very serious rules. So all of that excrement that we were generating is it has to we have to take it with us. You know, it's not as if you're just um, doing what you would do in most parts of the world is you know going into a hole and burying it at the end. You have to put everything in a bucket and carry it out with you afterwards. So luckily. Obviously, wow. it's cold enough for it all to freeze, so otherwise it could get really heinous. But it, 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 this is kind of amazing thing that you think at the end of it, you're taking absolutely everything with you. Every ounce of urine, every every little bit of poo that you've you know generated is all coming with you. So it's a it's an extraordinary logistics. Right, the extreme uh, um, the extreme version of leave it, no well, trace. Exactly, right? it's exactly that. 
And when when you're in this 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 little shack, this it, it it looked like a little shipping container for for months or weeks on end, just two of you, maybe three of you. How how are you managing to stay sane? You hinted already that it's it was a you had these moments of, of fleeting insanity, but how did you stay focused and 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 together? Hmm, good question. <laughs> we tried cooking, but that didn't really. I mean, we. You know, we, do, we we tried cooking lots of things, and they all ended up tasting fairly similar, regardless of what the ingredients were. Um, mm. That kept us going for a little while. We I, played games with the. Uh, you remember we played games with the cereal packets. Yes, every every because all of the food is American branded food. So if you're thinking things like Aunt Jemima's, you know, syrup and uh, and I don't know what's the guy on the front of the Kellogg's. Oh, Frosties. Quaker Oats. I don't yeah, know what he was oh, yeah, called. Yeah, Quaker Oats. He's Mr. Quaker. Yeah. Um, anyway, we used to get them down, and we'd have a little, you know, they'd have little parties with them. Yeah, I think we'd talk to each other, channeling it through the branded faces of American foodstuffs. That's, yeah, that, and that's that's perfectly sane. <laughs> so that, yeah. And and by this time, you guys have spent a lot of time together, and you got to know each other. There's no place like that to get the, 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 to get to know mm. each other uh, quicker, is mm. there? And were there things that drove you crazy about each other? I mean, you must know each other so well at this point, you know. But were the things that were like, God, I wish Mark would stop doing that, or whenever Jeff does that, or, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure uh, knitting. I, I I started knitting. I wish you'd uh, stopped knitting. I was terrible at knitting. I tried. I started knitting <laughs> just to try and take my mind off, you know, being around you know, the same person all the time. So I could concentrate on that and not have to make conversation. But I was really, I was knitting a hat. It got, it was, I found it really difficult to remember how many, you know, when you're going around, when you're knitting the hat, and you've got to remember each one. So you're trying to make it smaller as you go up. And it, I just couldn't do that. So in the end, that drove me absolutely mad as well. So I had to stop. So it ended up being more of a neck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I can see you've done the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> the good thing about Mark is that if you leave him to his own devices, he becomes so pissed off with himself that it's impossible for him to, <laughs> to get pissed off with you to the same level. So <laughs> the the thing is to just stay quiet, let him go through his cycle, and then and let him come out the other side. We're not really answering the question. <laughs> are we? Work Do you know? I tell you what. I tell you what. I think you know, Mark. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, but we we tend to quite often split up in the colony so that we weren't in each other's presence yes. at least towards the end. You know, quite so that when we came back at the end of the day, we actually had something to talk about yeah. in terms of yeah. what we would. Yeah. What did you see, penguin? <laughs> yeah. God, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that at least gave us a little bit of something to talk about. When we eventually came back to the hut, you know, and were trapped in there for days on end. Yeah, yeah. So, um, were the circumstance because you, you guys were just filming the Disney nature film as well, and uh, were the circumstances similar as they were during the filming of, of Frozen Planet? Yeah, so very similar. Yeah, in fact, it was yeah, it was quite interesting because. We, I certainly for me, you know, the, one of the most petrifying things I found about doing about being there before was once you'd experienced. We we're talking about that storm and that wind. Uh, I remember very clearly the sound of that that wind before it hit us, which was like a squadron of of seven four seven jets in the distance. It was like unmistakably, uh, you know, awful. And you, at that stage, I didn't know what it was. Once that storm, had, you'd been through that storm. You sort of always remembered that sound. So when we went back the second time, um, I was always on the lookout for, you know, if you're down in the colony, which was maybe three or, three or four miles away, if it, I was always particularly sensitive listening for that sound because if, if that storm had hit when we were down in the colony, there's no way you would have got back. Um, you'd definitely have died out there. Um, and so we were, when I was down there, I sort of felt a little bit nervous the whole time. And I do remember being down there once. We had uh, four people there with us on our team. And we'd been out on the sea ice and we came back in and I was chatting with her. And she and she, and she said, you know, did you hear that? And I was like, well, it said it sounded like a, something like a, like a squadron of jets. And I was just like, oh, my God. Right, quick, everyone pack up. I just went into full panic mode and sort of yelled across, across at Jeff, like, let's get out of here. And we, we packed it as fast as we could and legged it up the hill and but caught, got caught in it. Mm. And we, wow. yeah, I mean, we, we got back. We were, we were literally crawling on the ground to get back up there. I don't, you know, I think even though we'd experienced it before, we hadn't got caught out in it on the first time round. And this time round, we, we were right on the edge, weren't we? And 
I, I remember getting up to the hut this time around and just being so physically exhausted. You know that kind of exhaustion you get where you, you're inadvertently making groaning noises when you're breathing? It was that level of exhaustion and it was battling... <laughs> It was battling against these winds for what the journey normally takes, what, 45 minutes, doesn't yeah. it? And we probably were, it took us a couple of hours to get up that slope, yeah. you know, through those winds. Wow. It really? was truly amazing. I do remember that, that clip of you, Mark, uh, pouring your thermos <laughs> of tea and the yeah. tea was just flying mm. horizontally yeah. across. Well, this one, this was all, in a way, this none of it ended up in your cup because of the 130 mile an hour wind. It was crazy uh, to watch. Yeah. We, this that second storm we're talking about was almost more impressive in that we got into the hut and at that point there were some people from McMurdo, the main base there, so what they call the carps, the, basically the joiners who come out and mend stuff and they were putting up another bit building. They'd come out uh, with all their kit and their kit is is brought out in a in a, what is effectively the same size as a shipping container made of, of solid wood and they have everything they need, all their supplies, all the stuff that they need, they, put, they have in there and it's slung under a helicopter and brought out and for the duration that they're there they get all their stuff out of it and I was stood in this hut after we made it back to the the hut and at the corner of my eye I saw something go past the window and looked out the window and that container had blown off and was making its way down the slope and it blew uh, about a mile and a half down this slope and, and, and came to rest at the bottom and um, that was all their kit so um, I don't know how much that stuff weighed. They, but, I think yeah. they thought it was like uh, somewhere between 800 and 1,000 pounds in a box got picked up by this wind and thrown down the slope. It was pretty extraordinary. Are you kidding? That that puts it into perspective. <laughs> yep. it, I remember that uh, that clip of you, Mark, saying, um, you know, I'm surprised the rocks aren't mm. blowing. And then at that very Aye. moment, a rock blew Well, it's exactly <laughs> that thing, yes. It's sort of once you, I mean, to keep going on about it, once you've sort of experienced that, it makes you sort of uh, quite uh, worried about in other parts of the world. You're never quite sure what, uh, you know, what can actually happen in a wind that's that strong. You know that, I mean, the, the way that that cup of tea... Um, experiment came about was that one of the things that again is 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 particular to that part of Antarctica is that when you have these really high winds, there's it, it can often be a you know a high pressure day in in that there's no cloud forms around and there's very little snow on the ground. So actually, under being able to visualise wind is a very very difficult thing. There are no clearly there are no trees, there are no bushes, there's no buildings that can kind of show that they're being blown around by wind. So we, we were trying to figure out on that particular day how to communicate to people back home quite how strong the wind was, because if you just pointed a camera out the window, it looked like a, just a normal kind of cold, sunny Antarctic day. But, you mm. know, it, it didn't really reflect how strong that storm was. You know, when, when these two words pop into my head, at SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast had this fortitude and resilience that you guys had to have and then the fortitude and resilience of these penguins let's switch a little bit to to the penguins it, you've described this uh almost like a, a death zone but it's almost a, a, a place of rebirth at the same time it's a curious mix isn't it um can you explain why these penguins are there and when they're there and what they're doing can you give and just in a nutshell, guys, you know, just just sort of explain what that what's the ecology going on there? Why are they there? What are they doing? And then we'll get into more more questions about the penguins specifically. I mean, so Adelie penguins are, are they come back to land um, to the mainland of Antarctica to breed, and they do that over a four month period, and that's between the months of October and February. And in that really short period of time, they've got to do everything. They've got to build a nest. They've got to um, meet a mate. They've got to mate. They've got to lay eggs. They've got to rear, um, incubate those eggs get them to hatch, rear their chicks, and then get them everybody out of the colony by February, by which time the, the weather starts changing and the sea ice starts building again. So they've got a very, very, very intense period of time in which to kind of do their entire breeding life cycle. And because it's so short, that drives pretty much everything in, a, in an Adelie penguin's life 
during those months you know so that's why they're so competitive that's why um they 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 come together in huge numbers they've just got to get through this this breeding period as quickly as they possibly can and so and that and so our time there was really mirroring you know both for frozen planet and for the the latest um uh feature that we've been doing it was mirroring that that period of time for for the delhi's life cycle and then the half a million of them arrive, these screaming penguins just down the hill from your, your container shack, and you go out daily to film them. And, and when, when they first arrived, are they, what are they doing when they first arrive there? They're, they're sort of, they just start to gather and, and huddle together against the elements? What is it you're filming when they first get there, and how does that Well, then, first unfold? of all, the, <clears throat> the males arrive back first, and they arrive back to sort of claim their ter- territory. And so they're there for a, for a week or so beforehand, and um, and they're just displaying to themselves, and they're building the nest, and they're to do that they're collecting you know little pebbles and stones, and defending their little two feet around that that nest, and so at that stage it's you know mm. it's quite um, it, it's all quite gentle and nice, and they're displaying rather beautifully on their nest, and then after a week. The females come back, and then uh, then it all go, it kicks off a bit because then uh, there's a fair bit of disputes g- going on, and there's males who don't have females or whose females have died, um, and so they start roaming around and they try and get they're trying to get another female, and so there's a, that at that point there's a huge amount of fighting going on, and it can be incredibly violent. Um, I mean, they'll fight to the death, uh, and the, so the, they, the best position in those uh, in those colonies is sort of in the middle. So, because uh, if they're in the middle, they're further away from the, the skewers who are trying to predate the, the chicks. So, that ideally, you'd find a female and get a nest in the middle. And so, to get to that position, you know, you've got to you you have to fight. So, that's when a lot of the action happens, and um, you know, so that's that's kind of the point at which everything kicks off. It's you know when you talk about half a million of them, and, and I've, I've read there's what perhaps eight million in in total worldwide in the in the, in Antarctica of this species, the Adelie penguin. You think oh, it must be a life of plenty. They're doing great, but it sounds like hell for a penguin there. <laughs> what you're describing, it sounds yeah. like it's a difficult place to make a sweet story out of. That's yeah, for sure. it is. I think it's, it's pretty. Death zone it, and fighting and competition for mating and trying to stay alive at the end of the day. It's brutal. It's, that must have been a tough thing to yeah. tell to tell a story in a in a sweet way when it is obviously such a tough place to be a, a bird. I think it says quite a lot about Adelis that they don't aggregate outside of their breeding season you know i mean we always look at they 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 do come together in small groups but they very intentionally don't kind of step on each other's toes like they do in the colony for for the other eight months of the year that they're not in the breeding colony so you know that that says a lot about kind of the the nature of an adelie penguin i mean we always you, you what you have at cape crozier is extraordinary um uh, juxtaposition of emperor penguins because there's a small emperor penguin calling there and you really get to understand the difference between an adeli and an, an emperor hmm. and we always thought that kind of the emperors are like stoner penguins right they just sit there and they're kind of curious and easygoing and you know they they'll come up and say hello but everyone's pretty calm and i think it's mainly because they're fairly bird-brained you know they don't they're not much as going on between the eyes on in an, an emperor penguin but an adeli penguin conversely is kind of like a super over caffeinated penguin and they, these guys are on a mission and they just <laughs> are you know they're bashing the hell out of each other they're bashing the hell out of us that they you know they are literally on a mission and and, and no one's going to stop them you imagine it's it's kind of like imagine standing in uh, a crowd of five hundred thousand joe pesci's from goodfellas it's kind of like that and they <laughs> go completely nuts and so yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it, like we said before, it's complete chaos. Well, we saw it in, uh, on, when the emperor, uh, emperor penguin colony m- sort of morphed its way. This emperor penguin colony starts off in these ice cliffs about uh, four miles across the ice from where the uh, Adelie penguin colony is. And through the season, it sort of came out onto the sea ice and, and kept moving like this sort of amoeba across the ice. And at one point, it was quite close to the Adelie penguin colony. And... Uh, so it was directly in a line with the uh, Adelie penguins coming back from the sea to their colony. And the Adelies would come into the emperor penguin colony. And this was at the point where the chicks, they had, the emperor penguins had big fluffy chicks that were probably twice to three times the size of the Adelie penguins. 
and the Adelis would get would just come and rest in the colony, and then after a while they'd start picking fights with the emperor penguin chicks. And they'd walk up to them and literally bounce into them and look up at them at the emperor penguin chicks, sort of towering above them. And the emperor penguin chicks <laughs> were just like, "What? What are you doing?" And the Adeli penguin would just not give up. It would bounce into it and literally pushing it until the emperor penguin chick turned and ran. And then the Adeli penguin would chase it, and then other Adeli penguins would join in. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. I think, but you know, joking aside, that's what makes the Delis such an amazing subject for filming is that they have this abundance of character that that you can see, you know, even between individuals in the colony, you can see the ones that are slightly more uh, relaxed or slightly more pissed off or slightly more kind of ambitious. It's it's it seems extraordinary to say that, but you, there are distinct differences in the ways that all of those, you know, five hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand breeding pairs approach life which is really the definition of character and that what's kind of makes them an interesting subject for filming mm. yeah and a whole host of, of characters like you say each with a different personality yeah. and when you go in you know how much how much are you arriving with a story so so for example in in the disney nature mm. film i love the title of it steve by the <laughs> way it's just it's about steve the penguin how how much of that is is sort of how much do you arrive with a story in mind versus letting letting Steve determine what that story is? You know, I mean, I mean, there must have been loads of directions that you could have gone in and and, and used, but but the penguins help design the story while you're there, live almost. I think. I mean, we had the fortune of obviously being there before, so we kind of knew what to expect and what to get you know what was going to happen to us but i think in any filmmaking regardless of whether any wildlife filmmaking regardless of whether it's penguins or not you have to i think you have to approach all of these subjects with a slightly zen attitude of letting mother nature drive and being there to kind of um take pictures along the way you know and i think um anybody who who tries to overscript uh, an experience will find themselves coming unstuck so i think the best balance really is to go with an idea of the kind of story that you want to tell but to be totally open to you know serendipity and that's i mean that for me is the is the reason that i do my job is allowing serendipity to take over at the important moment and just making sure that you're prepared to to capture that i love it and when and so when you have those moments and you get back to the get back to your shack and i know you guys you've probably got a bottle of scotch to celebrate certain moments with there you know what were some of those moments what were like your high five moments of oh my god can you believe that just oh, happened? i think the yeah certainly one was um i was talking about the when the males are, are building their, their their nests out of rocks and um the you know there's some very funny behavior goes on we were really lucky to be able to film some of that which is um you know mostly the penguin the males have to they're building the nest and they have to walk off to find stones and they may have to walk you know 20 30 meters to go and find a good collection of stones to and then walk mm. back to the nest and then but some of the penguins have cleverly worked out that why bother to walk 20 30 meters when you can just steal stones from the nest next door <laughs> and um so it's absolutely hilarious to watch that happening because the poor penguin who's walking, you know, 20 metres, 30 metres back and forth is totally oblivious to the the penguin that just nips literally two feet away to steal the stones. And, you know, it's such a a, a great bit of behaviour that we managed to get it, it all, almost all in one with very little editing needed because the, the, the birds are so close together. You can, you're able to film it very, very easily. And it basically told the story itself. And I think what, that was definitely one of those moments when we got back and it was just, yes, that is just funny in any language. That's a very funny thing. I think, I mean, it, I, Mark's being incredibly humble about this as well, Chris. I mean, I think the, you know, the, uh, the thing about that particular sequence is just the, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not one for bigging up Mark, but he, he did, he, <laughs> he there, it, that stone stealing is happening a lot, but to get the perfect combination of an animal coming in and out of frame and the other one still being in the background and looking over its shoulder and coming in and, and having it all happen <laughs> in real time without the, the need for an edit is, is an extraordinary, I know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but it didn't, it didn't happen on the first day, did it? It's kind of like, mm -hmm. that's just persistence and persistence and persistence mm -hmm. to be, um, observing and watching and and turning over and failing time and time again to get the perfect shot, but you can't better what Mark achieved in that particular sequence. That that is the perfect perfect sequence. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I agree. 
<laughs> it's, ama- it's amazing to me how, how um, popular penguins are. You know, you mentioned that the worst journey in the world, Jeff, earlier on, and, and um, I came across an awesome quote by one of the writers on that, that, that expedition in 1910, and he said, they are extraordinarily like children, <laughs> these little people of the Antarctic world, either like children or like old men, full of their own importance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, that's really true. <laughs> these just sound like lovely characters that everyone can kind of relate to and see a bit of a, yes. a human being in, right? Did they remind you of humans and their personality traits? I think, I think that's kind of the thing that we kind of, you know, obviously we're there to capture behavior, but you want people to understand you know at least I do I want people to understand that penguins are more than just cute and funny and I think you know seeing the fighting and the stone stealing and and you know just some of the things that make them uh that make them have uh faults which in 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 a bizarre way makes them more relatable I mean I think personally I find animals that are put on a pedestal and and given a whole bunch of wonder completely unrelatable it's the ones that that are slightly angry or have bad days or get pissed off that make them feel much more in connection with human life, you know, much more on a continuum with with our characters. And I think I think Adelis are perfect for that because you can see that happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you think that do you think that's why people are drawn to them? That I mean, this this species that most people in their lives will never lay eyes on for real, you know, because they live in these very isolated places, but they can still relate to. What what's that all about? What is that anthropomorphic kind of relationship there? Can you talk a bit more about that? I think I mean I think the I think the the fact that that you can, you know, I mean penguins are penguins are completely expressionless which allows us to project our own emotions on them you know they don't have eyebrows they don't have forward-facing eyes and so they they, in in that way they don't have what we would conceive as expressions however they do have a sort of physical comedy to them which allows us to project our own kind of thoughts and our own mind into their being and and whether that's the right thing to do or not is is not always is is not always um correct but at the same time i think they do have this range of characters that allows us to kind of embellish you know individuals in in the way that we have done in the past yeah do you, do you i don't struggle with that anymore we went through that a little bit with the bear show didn't we you know it's like how much are we going to impose our human behavior traits and 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 actions on on these bears and you can't help but do it and i think it's because we do share some of those traits it's quite interesting mm. you know whether we're like penguins or penguins are like us or same with bears it's 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 difficult not to go there mm. isn't it and I, I i don't think there is a problem going no. there you know making these animals yeah there are certain emotions seem a little human certain, because it makes them accessible certain character it? traits which are universal aren't they i think when it comes down to children and raising young then it's easy to see to make those links between you know between humans between bears between penguins i mean there's you know that all of us are sort of you know that's a primary aim protecting their protecting their young and and uh, that you know that 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 links everything i think I think I think you're right, Chris, and that there's yeah, everyone can no relate shame to that. in in anthropomorphism um, anymore. I think you know, anybody who spends a significant amount of time with animals will understand that there are that human uh, emotions are not a uniquely human thing. You know, we're all on a continuum, and that continuum um, is it includes many of the species that Mark and I have gone out to film. And I think just by pure observation, regardless of whether you're capturing them on camera or not, you know, you you get to see things that are recognizable as emotion and as characters and then i don't think there's any shame in 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 broadcasting that right right so you guys have have, have spent so much time in these wild far away places that most people never go to and then you get to share what you've seen with the rest of the world in these incredible incredible films how how mark i'll start with you how does that how does that make you feel when you see your work on a screen where you've you've been through that real raw experience and now it's come to the world it's it's difficult sometimes um to quite see it as anyone else does i think um it's only after you you know maybe 10 years have passed that you can actually look at something and see it how everyone else sees it um I think from the point of view of a cameraman, 
it's very difficult to see what you filmed without also remembering all the stuff which you didn't film and missed. So initially, it's 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 uh, <laughs> right. you know you're out there and you've seen so many so much amazing stuff that for whatever reason you weren't able to to film. Um, so it, it's. So it's it a painful can be, experience. Initially, initially, it's a painful experience, <laughs> and then over time, you forget all that stuff and you see it for what it is. But yeah, so it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, a difficult one to to answer that. Um, even if it's you know it's great, it's difficult to see to see what everyone else is saying about it. Um, hopefully, you know, after a time, you you do. And what about you, Jeff? Yeah, I kind of, I, I, I mean, I, I, when my, when Mark and I finish working together, then I go back and watch the same footage over and over and over again, probably a thousand times. And so, I think the greatest tool in any filmmaking armory is actually the editor who comes at it from a from a fresh perspective. You know, I think if Mark and I were asked to to then make an Adeli film after spending four months of, amongst them, it would probably be the darkest Adeli film ever made. You know, and we probably <laughs> would be pushing our own experiences way into the, the zone of, of, of affecting how the film would be. Mm. Whereas what the editor does is, you know, he kind of comes at it completely fresh and, and completely objectively and looks at our work and says, OK, well, this this looks interesting and this looks fun and he works with us to kind of shape that into something which can help people understand the experience without the without the the lens that we've already we've taken away from it and i think that's the benefit of not having to wait 10 years like mark says to 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 kind of see it for what it is you know that that's what the editor does but i think i mm-hmm. think you know the ultimately for me personally the just every time that we put a a bit of the natural world on screen um and you no know, regardless of the amount of effort that's put into it is is a complete you know privilege and your films have been seen by countless millions i dare say maybe even billions of people at this point and what what do you hope to achieve by by these films what what's what do you hope people take away and in the case of in the case of penguins in particular you know what what uh what do you want someone to feel, do, experience during and after that film? Well, personally, I think that you have to hope that the audience feels some empathy with those penguins and, you know, understands the struggles that they've gone through so that when they, you know, people read in the news about, you know, overfishing or, you know, problems in the Ross Sea where the penguins are feeding is that they're already sensitive to what lives there and it's not just some disembodied bit of news but there may be you know they can relate to the fact oh that's where those penguins you know are living and if it's you know if there's a problem there then these penguins are going to have are going to be uh, less well off and so hopefully you know it all adds up bit by bit to, to making people more sensitive more aware for me that if, if you can achieve that mm-hmm. then you've achieved something and, and Jeff, you described it as a privilege, but do you see it as an obligation to get the word out as well? Do you know, I, 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 I've, I, I have always felt that, you know, I come from a family of conservationists, but more and more lately, I, I kind of really believe um, or feel strongly that it's really important for us as, as wildlife filmmakers in the blue chip sphere is what we call this kind of pure natural history that we do um, to remind people that, you know, humans are not the center of the world in a in most of the planet you know we we're so good as humans to put ourselves at the center of every picture and and in fact the there is so much going on in particularly in the natural world that has absolutely nothing to do with us and i think it's important really to kind of re-establish that balance occasionally to kind of tell stories that just have nothing to do with any human whatsoever and kind of represent the natural world and and that and to me that's the truest form of documentary that you could possibly hope for is just kind of re- reminding people that there are things happening out there that have absolutely nothing to do with us um and and although we have an effect on it um there is a there there are there are places and you know Cape Crozier is maybe one of the best examples is that 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 whole life cycle goes on regardless of any human influence at all and uh, year in year out, year in year out without you know for millennia i think it's really important to kind of break people away from the drama of their daily lives and remind them that there's something else going on in the world that doesn't involve them and I, you know that's that's my main drive these days mhm you must get 
kind of emotionally attached to to your subject. I mean, something as adorable as a as a penguin character named Steve, for example, you can't come away from that untouched, and 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 uh, it must sit with you for a long time. I think it. You know, I think you go through various stages of of love and hate, particularly with the delis. You know, you kind of you come out of that experience <laughs> um, completely shattered. Completely. Same with exhausted. you and Mark as well, probably right. And uh, it, if you know, you have to be really honest about it. It's it's kind of a heinous place to work. You know, it's great for the first couple of weeks, and then after that, it becomes pretty difficult until you've got the end in sight. But when you get to the end, um. And I think my, you know, the little bit of diary writing that I did, Mark's much better at diary writing than I am. But I remember writing, saying, you know, that the you, just the Herculean effort that these animals are going through in order to get through their breeding season is is really admirable, you know. And and we we were knackered and fed up and ready to go simply because we didn't belong there. And these guys were, you know, these Adelis are nailing it you know and have been doing it for for a long time and that's that's something to be really in awe of I yeah think. i agree because i think when, when you come back you know when you come back and you know these making ofs come out and everyone goes oh isn't that great you must what a hard time you had and aren't you tough for doing all that stuff and then you know that's one tiny little blip in 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 time you know and, and those penguins are doing that every you know minute of their lives for i don't know how many years and you you, you think well that's you know it's really not very much compared to what they've got to put up with they're so much tougher than we actually managed yeah. to put on screen as well. I mean, there was so often you'd see, you know, they're getting attacked by leopard seals in the la- latter part of their season. <laughs> and, you know, these leopard seals are monsters. They're eight foot long and, you know, they eat penguins for breakfast, literally. And they, um, you know, they're taking chomps at these penguins and penguins are getting away with half a head, you know, missing. And then they would sit on the beach. You remember, you mm. kind of, there'd be a, an Adeli penguin sitting with half its head, you know, falling off. And it'd sit on the beach and you'd walk past it for the best part of four or five days and then on the fifth day you'd walk past it and it would just get up and walk up the hill as if nothing had happened and you know that's exactly how tough they are that you know you've got to you've got to pay respect to an animal uh, like that you make it sound like tarantino would it would make a great film uh-huh. in this place i, you I know? think tarantino might have been a penguin scientist in his former life <laughs> right let me ask you this then when you come back from these experiences after being away from home for so long that re-immersion must be quite difficult and strange hey i mean can you even have a normal conversation in a pub anymore i mean how mark what what does that feel like that that, that re-entry well all i can say is that i think a very good strategy is to have some kind of halfway house where you when you come back that you can uh, if you can spend a day somewhere else before you um, sort of revisit the family, then it do, it's a hell of a lot better than if you just go straight back in there. Because you're right, it's um, it's quite it is quite tough, uh, especially because you you know you've just got used to your way of life, you know, and you go back and you you really have to sort of try and slot back into the family and uh, expected to do the washing up and all the things that you're expected to do and you really your head is still dealing with half a million penguins and death <laughs> you just you're a bit of a basket case and so quite often i'll just end up going back home and i'll i definitely remember one occasion i just went back and i would i just sat on the couch at home for an entire day looking out the window just wondering what had happened and so yeah mentally it's uh, it's an interesting thing to deal with and, and and with that, Jeff, when you come back, I mean, you've got a lot of time to think about things in these wild places, and then you come back, and you might not have that processing time. Or but 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 when you do, what do these places make you think about our world at the sort of bigger, broader perspective? I know that's a it's a big question. Do you know, I mean, I, I kind of the profound. I think we we're in the fortunate minority in that it's almost the reverse, where these wild places allow you to kind of have perspective on your own life. You know, you disappear for a month and you don't have the pressures that we all have in our daily lives, you know, in in our in our normal adult, you know, world. And you go out and you and you 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 get a perspective on everything and then you come back and you find it a lot easier to deal with. So I, I actually find it restorative rather than a, a, a problem when I come back. You know, I, I sort of I feel like at least I think I come back a better person, but my wife might say differently. But the but I do, but it does it does give you just a little bit more of a calm approach to to you know the problems which we all face, which end up being incredibly minor when you when you look at them from a thousand miles away. 
That's a really lovely perspective. It must just be a treat to sit on a toilet that's not going to blow away for you guys. <laughs> Actually, I installed fans in my toilet after I got back. <laughs> that's not because of that, though. <laughs> <laughs> just to make you feel yes. at home. <laughs> Um, <laughs> let, let me ask you, and we we make. I'm, I'm watching okay. the time here, guys. So we may come back to a couple of thoughts. So let's leave some some thoughts for some time for that. I wanted to ask you though. I know you guys don't like blowing each other's trumpets, but let's just do it for a second. What is it about this? What's this nugget of of magic that works between you guys? You know, because I know it's a pretty special relationship. I've seen it in person. So what is it? How do you, how would you describe I'm kind it? Of waiting for Mark to retire. Jeff, how would you describe it? I, I, I don't know. I think it maybe it's just a um, we worked each other out pretty early on, and it's a tolerance. I don't think either of us have got quirks that are uh, you know that we can't overcome. That may be something to it. I don't know. What do you think, Mark? We don't talk to each other very much. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> That's the secret. Secret to any good relationship. Just don't communicate. Um, I, I think do- we're both. I think we're both pretty pretty tolerant people. I think. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're both pretty tolerant we both enjoy being out in these amazing places i think and uh you know that's you know that's 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 about it i think we also both have the same outlook and in, in terms of the attitude to 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 work when we're in the field i think we both know what a privilege it is to be there and we we like taking you know risks that are manageable and kind of pushing ourselves and pushing the boundary and trying to figure out what happens if we walk around the next corner? And I think both of us have that in us to kind of look over the next corner or over the next mountain or behind the next iceberg and think, oh, I wonder what's there. And we, mm. we just go there and sometimes it pays off. It's true. That's what, I remember that very much with that snow leopard trip is yeah. that I remember that feeling. I think you had the same thing. It was like we're in this we're in this extraordinary place, like I said, a boys on adventure, and we're getting paid for it, mm. and we're seeing these amazing animals. I just think this, you know, the excitement, it's like being a sort of 12-year-old boy uh, f- for a job. Mm. And, of course, no one's there to kind of check mm. your decision-making, so it's just the two of us. So we do go off on these crazy things, and, and, and you know, just to try and see, because no one else has seen what is around that corner, and we go off and... Like I said, sometimes it does pay off and sometimes we just end up looking like complete fools and knackering ourselves out. I love it. And having having the right company in moments like that is is uh, is very important, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you've seen it, Chris, haven't you? You've seen it on the bear thing, uh, you know, when you were out there with us as well. That's, uh, you know, it's uh, you've, you've got to get on well with people and you need the right mixture. I think that's what we found in you guys yeah, as exactly. well is that we kind of it's exciting we it's not just about animals you know our job is we get to meet fantastic people and we get to meet people with enthusiasm and and I think both Mark and I are are, are better listeners than we are talkers um, which is why we tend to enjoy meeting people because god knows that you can talk Chris and um the, you know that's why we like to be in your company <laughs> I thought there was a compliment <laughs> yes. coming, but no, never mind. I didn't say that you could talk interestingly. I just said that you could talk. <laughs> I remember, Chris, uh, I think one of the few times I've ever seen Jeff uh, angry was uh, on that bear, uh, bear trip that we all did together. Remember we were doing aerials. Jeff wanted us to do aerials. Uh, he had the uh, cineflex, yeah. and we were walking down that river. He wanted us to walk up, walk up a river looking very manly. Do you remember that? <laughs> together. I do remember. Yeah, that and we were walking well. down yes, the, it was a struggle. Walk, walking through this river. It was incredibly difficult to do, and we're thinking, "What the heck is he wants to do this for?" And then, as a joke, uh, to explode the manly myth, I thought, "Why don't we just you and me hold hands?" <laughs> and so, and, oh, that's right. <laughs> and as you and I linked hands uh, like a loving couple in the middle of the river as we we're walking down, that was the crucial point, Jeff, in Jeff's shot, where it was all looking absolutely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was only a five thousand dollar helicopter shot, wasn't exactly. it? Yeah, <laughs> I should have known. I should have picked some different people. Yeah, the one, manly. the one time Jeff Wilson got angry. <laughs> it doesn't happen often. It normally only happens with people. Well. Guys, I, I got to say thanks for letting us into to your corner of the wild. It's been uh, it's been really lovely catching up with you and hearing your stories and. and um, I can't wait to hear what people think about this. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Great talking to you again.
Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.